we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And today we're going to be talking about the impact of immigration on education, public schools specifically. This is a topic that comes up a lot, but there really hasn't been a lot of research on it. I think one of the reasons is that the public school establishments really don't want to be talking about this. They don't want the public to be talking about it. And so it's something that doesn't get nearly the amount of attention it deserves because immigration, given the share of school-age kids who come from immigrant families, whether they're born here or came with their parents, is very large. And so this is a significant impact, maybe good, maybe bad, maybe it doesn't matter, but the point is this is a significant consequence of mass immigration and something that really warrants more discussion. So what we're going to do today is we have two guests, center analysts, Stephen Camerata and Todd Benzman, and each is an author of a relatively recent piece on immigration and its effect on public schools. Steve first is going to talk about the effect nationwide looking at specific areas, and he'll explain what that area thing means. It's not school districts, but it's census categories. And we have a map that goes along with it. It's on our website. And then Todd will talk about a case study that he wrote, both for us, and it also appears in his recent book, of a particular area and the effect that mass immigration, illegal immigration mostly in this case, has had on a school district outside Houston, not in the city, but sort of out in the country. And this is, I think, gives us a good look both sort of at the statistics nationwide and then how that plays out on the ground. So, Steve, if you could start by telling us what you found in this report of yours, what were you looking for, and what are some of the results? Well, thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me on. We have a report that came out last week mapping immigration's impact on America's public schools. So we're only looking at public schools here. We focused on, or the centerpiece is a map, as he said. It basically combines Census Bureau data with Google Maps. There are, roughly speaking, about 2,400 census-designated public-use micro-areas, or pumas, kind of like the animal. So these micro-areas allow for really the most detailed look we can get with Census Bureau data of this kind. One of the things that we're able to do then is look for these areas that are most heavily impacted. Now, a Puma, you know, roughly speaking, has about seven high schools in it. So it's not a super small area. On the other hand, in a big city, it might roughly correspond to a neighborhood. But out in the country, it would be a much larger area, again, covering seven high schools. So it might be 
quite geographically large. And again, that's just a rough number. One other caveat about these numbers that we're looking at here is that the data comes from 2021, so it does not reflect the enormous impact of the border crisis and releasing, as a matter of policy, so many illegal immigrants into the United States, including school-aged children. So what did we find? Well, the key finding might not be too surprising is that immigration has an enormous impact on public schools. But that impact, not again, not so surprisingly, is quite uneven across the country. The impact is so large that it, in some parts of the country, that it raises profound questions about assimilation and integration. Also, the other thing, as I'll discuss, is that immigrants tend to add a lot of kids to public schools without necessarily a corresponding increase in local taxes. It's not because the immigrants don't work. It's not because they all shirk their taxes. It's that they have lower incomes. And also, they have more kids per household. And also, a very large fraction of the kids speak a language other than English at home. Now, overall, what did we find? Well, just to give you a couple of numbers, the 11 million public school students in 2021 from immigrant households account for about a fourth of all public school students now. Now, most of these kids are U.S. born. It's important to note. So we're looking at kids who come from immigrant families. Basically, they have immigrant parents. And again, it's about a fourth of the total number of public school kids. And and what is, I mean, just obviously you could multiply that, but what is the total number of kids in public schools? Very roughly speaking, it's about 45 million. Okay. So yeah. Okay. And so, so they're about a fourth of them come from immigrant backgrounds or immigrant families. And this is double the 11% in 1990, and it's more than triple the 7% in 1980. So this represents an enormous increase in recent decades. Now, one of the key findings, of course, is there are more kids per immigrant household than there are native households. About 55 public school students per 100 immigrant households compared to 33 public school students per 100 native households. Now, this is partly because immigrants are younger and a little bit more likely to have children. And it's also partly because immigrants are much more likely to send their kids to public school, while a larger fraction of U.S.-born parents send their kids to private school. Most uh, of both groups send their kids to public school, of course, but immigrants' propensity to do so is somewhat higher, and that also means that they tend to create a very big increase in enrollment in many areas. Now, many people may wonder, our best estimate is somewhat under a third of all the children from immigrant households are from illegal immigrant households. About 3.2 million kids come from illegal immigrant households or put a different way, have illegal immigrant parents. Just to make sure before people get off on the Plyler v. Doe issue, most of those kids are U.S. born. That's right. 83%. 83% of children in immigrant households are born in the United States. And again, just so we're clear, these numbers are for 2021. They do not reflect the ongoing border crisis with several million new illegal immigrants having likely entered the country since the beginning of 2021. This data would not have, maybe a little of it, but it's not going to pick up that data. So we're going to have to wait a couple of years and redo it, and then we might be able to pick it up. And yes, in case you're wondering, without a long discussion, though we could have that, illegal immigrants most certainly do show up in this data. So the impact of immigration tends to be relatively concentrated. 
just 700 of the roughly 2,400 of these public use micro areas from the Census Bureau or Pumas, just 700 Pumas, account for about two-thirds of all the children from immigrant backgrounds in our public schools. Now, these same Pumas, if you were just to look at them, they only account for about one-third of total enrollment and less than that, of course, of the U.S. born. So immigrants can be found, of course, throughout America, but they are heavily concentrated and only about just 700 of them contain two-thirds of all the kids from immigrant backgrounds. Some other interesting findings are that these heavily immigrant-settled Pumas are in the states that you might expect, so New York, California, Texas, and Florida, but they also are other places. So it may not surprise you that in the Elmhurst, South Corona part of New York City, 96% of all kids in that area in public school come from an immigrant household, or it's 87% in North Dade County, Hialeah City, again, 87%. Or it might not surprise you that in central Los Angeles, the Koreatown area, it's 82%. But it might be a little more surprising, say, that in other areas of the country, you also see this kind of huge number. So for example, in Annandale, Virginia, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C., 73% of kids in public school come from an immigrant household. So that's not in one of the top, top immigrant receiving states, but still an enormous impact in this suburban school area. It's part of Fairfax County, Virginia. We see similar numbers in Silver Spring, Maryland, roughly three-fourths of kids in part of that area are also from immigrant households. So it is the case that while immigrants tend to be concentrated, there are many areas that are outside of those areas that also have very high concentrations of immigrants. Now, immigration has added disproportionately to the number of low-income students in 2021. 21% of public school students from immigrant households lived in poverty, and they account for 29% of all students living in poverty who go to public schools today. So that can be a big issue. The other interesting point is, of course, because immigrants tend to have these lower incomes, they also tend to, but by no means exclusively, settle in areas of relatively high poverty and adds to the challenges of schools in those areas. In the 200 Pumas in America with the highest rates of poverty, where which is about, averages about 41%, Nearly 30% of the students are from immigrant households. So this can be a really significant challenge for these schools that were already struggling. The other factor, as I mentioned before, is because immigrant households generally have lower incomes, it can result in a big increase in enrollment because there are so many kids from immigrant families without a corresponding increase in the local tax base. So that too can make a big challenge. Also, immigration tends to add a lot of kids who speak a language other than English at home. doesn't mean the kids can't speak English. It just means that they speak a language other than English at home and a very significant fraction even report that they struggle in English. So in 2021, again, 22% of public school students spoke a language other than English at home. And this, of course, compares to 14% in 1990 and just 9% in 1980, and all of that growth is associated with immigration. 
Now, this is where we get to the question of assimilation, and I won't try to bore you with too many numbers, but I'll just make this point. One language typically, but not always, predominates. And of the, for the average immigrant, if you look at the area, the Puma in which they live, 39% of their fellow public school students also speak a foreign language at home. So one of the ways assimilation works is that the children of native-born people typically predominate in an area, so learning English and uh, cultural assimilation and so forth kind of occur almost naturally because of the preponderance of U.S.-born people and their children. But in many of these areas, that's simply not the case, and that almost certainly has some impact on the pace and way immigrants likely are assimilating into the United States. Steve, I could just make a point for listeners. The map has not only the proportion of kids from immigrant households in each of these census areas, but also has the number one and two foreign language spoken at home by those kids, right? So you can get a sense of what it is. Obviously, you know, it's going to be Spanish in a lot of places, but there's a lot of surprising examples too. If you click on the area and the pop-up box will show you a lot of interesting information. Yes, including things like poverty and the top countries of origin for the immigrant parents. Yeah, and on that point, again, although one language does predominate, in 341 of the Pumas we looked at, which have a combined school enrollment of 7.4 million, 10 or more languages were recorded by the Census Bureau as being spoken by public school students. The survey's not perfect at picking up that. That's almost certainly an underestimate, but it gives you an idea of the linguistic diversity that schools have to deal with due to illegal immigration and our extremely generous legal immigration system. Yeah, I want to get to Todd to talk about one of these areas, but I wanted a little bit a sort of a methodological question. Please don't turn off the podcast. We're not going to be talking statistics, but what's the reason you have to use these so-called public use areas is because they don't release the even more detailed data where you could get down even closer. Is that correct? You could. There is some data released at the block level. To remind your listeners again, this data comes from the American Community Survey. They do release more close-in data, but they combine five years of data. Uh, so the picture is somewhat always outdated, and there are some other methodological issues there. And they so, have to do that because it's a survey, right? In other words- It's, uh, a, it's to, a survey, and right. they're trying to preserve anonymity. Right. So they also don't release stuff- the other thing is at that micro, that really tiny block level, they don't let you analyze the data. Here, we can almost do anything we want with this public use data. There, they do all the data for you. So, for example, you wouldn't be able to easily get the number of kids from immigrant households. You might just get the number of kids who are immigrants themselves, that kind of thing. Right, right. Okay. So, so that's why this is really, at the local level, the best we can do. It has its limitations, but you can see your area and just click on it and learn a great deal more from our map. So that's actually a good segue to Todd Benzman, who in his book, recent book, Overrun, had a whole chapter, a version of which we've published as well as a backgrounder on a particular area, not a public use micro area, but it's a particular school district or particular county. 
and actually went and talked to administrators and all of that sort of thing. So really got a kind of detailed look that lends some, I guess, some texture to the broader statistical data that Steve was talking about. So Todd, thanks for joining us. And if you could tell us where is this area and what was interesting about it to you that made you want to go and explore it? Sure. This is Liberty County, Texas, which is about 40 miles northeast of Houston. Right. And it's a very unique area in that it has attracted probably on the order of 75,000 to 100,000 mostly Spanish speaking residents. The people who live there and work there tell me that the vast majority of them are illegal immigrants attracted by one landowner's offer to sell them three quarter acre lots where they can build homes and cut out the banks. You know, you don't have to have income history or employment history or anything like that. And so, you know, tens of thousands of illegal immigrants apparently have moved into this region over the last six, seven, eight years. There is a vast expansion underway out there. It's a colonia. It's the considered the largest colonia in the United States. And a colonia for listeners is uh, kind of a, an informal illegal immigrant community is what it's come to mean. Usually they're right near the border, but this is obviously if it's northeast of Houston, it's a good ways away from the border. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, hundreds of miles away from the border. And, you know, to, to Steve's point and his study of the Pumas, you know, he caps out at 2021. I thought this was an interesting place to go because the current border crisis that is now in its third year began in 2021. And so it's not going to be reflected in his study and as an impact on society, public school districts are going to be probably first impacted in the most visible, noticeable pocketbook way. Right. Because this mass migration crisis is very child centric. The policy was crafted in a way that attracted people with kids. If you had a kid, you got in. And if you were an unaccompanied minor, you got in. I mean, we look, we're looking at about 800,000 unaccompanied minors that have entered the country since 2018 or so, hundreds of thousands. And we really don't know how many children have entered, but I did do some arithmetic and analysis of apprehension data. We may very well have had seen as many as 2 million school-aged children cross over the border. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens in the Pumas at the next you know, survey and the next tally. That study, I think, is very valuable, especially in the sense that it provides pointers to where these children might have gone. We might be able to actually see them. But there's no really public data or records available about, you know, where all these kids are going right now. But they definitely have been going to this school district, which is the Cleveland Independent School District. And uh, when I did my reporting in mostly May of 2022, that school district was a rural county school district, you know, probably 3,400 K through 12 kids attended uh you know as as recently as 2013 and now they're projecting by next year 20,000 wow just to give you an idea of the many many multiples of growth in the school superintendent 
was very candid, had a long series of interviews with him, who you know was not hiding the fact that the vast majority of them are illegal migrant kids, and described for me the growing pains that he has had to endure and that whole school district has had to endure as a result of this massive growth, which may be more extreme here than in most other places. But what he was describing and what I found there should be transferable to school districts, probably thousands of school districts across the nation to one degree or another, even if it's a lesser degree. And that is first and foremost space, which is Obviously, when there are caps on students per teacher, gets short fast, and they have to have bond elections that are tax hiking bond elections one after another after another in this school district to pay for classroom expansions, portable classrooms, additional administration, personnel, you know, maintenance, everything. So these school districts struggle to accommodate these sudden increases in just bodies. And then beyond that, the impacts in this Cleveland ISD, Cleveland, Texas ISD, were, you know, vast. I mean, it was uh, crime in the hallways, gangs, people who were entering the schools under the Supreme Court ruling that requires it, who had no education in their home country at all or very limited. Maybe they went to second grade in their home country in a different language. And now they have to be in schools here. And, you know, what do you do with that? You have to segregate them and bring in ESL teachers and special curriculum, ESL curriculum that just targets them. And so obviously academic achievement has fallen dramatically in that school district. I did have public records requests. I got all of the data about that. The number of Spanish-speaking students rose from something like 35% before this happened to 90% now. Wow. And so almost everybody, every teacher in this school district had to get ESL certified and they had to hire more. They've actually had to do H-1B visas to bring foreign teachers in, hiring foreign teachers to sponsor, to handle this. Vast farms of portable classrooms that you can see from an overhead and huge, huge, huge new schools. You know, like they're almost the size of, they look like college campuses, some of these things, middle schools. Really, a lot of problems associated with the very crucial aspect of public education, which is teacher-parent involvement and interaction. A lot of these parents are not legal and they don't speak English and they're not involved in a normal way in their kids' education. That presents a problem. You also have just security issues when large student bodies transfer from you know one period to the next. They don't have enough maintenance, security. Things are happening in the hallways at this place. Lots of problems going on when you have sudden spiking growth in foreign nationals. But obviously, the people that were going to school in this district beforehand have left. They've moved, either their families have moved away or they're fleeing the situation, basically, going to private schools or charter schools somewhere else. And so that was one 
school district, but in my research, I found lots of evidence that this kind of thing is going on across the country, elsewhere in Texas, in New York, in Idaho, in Nebraska. All you really have to do to find out if you're, because local media tends not, like you said in the beginning of the podcast, tends not to like to report on these kind of problems or talk about it, even when they're having bond elections. However, if you just Google your school district, the name of your school district or a school district that interests you and the word bond election or the words portable classroom, you will find it. You don't have to look very far to see what's happening in a school district. And then you just dig a little bit deeper on Facebook pages, et cetera, and in the literature and discussion about the bond elections that are coming up and going on across the the nation to figure out what this is from. Yeah. And you can obviously go to the map and look at the one that Steve was talking about and see, like you said, Todd, kind of where some of these problems are. And in a lot of cases, those are going to be where the ongoing flow of immigrants are going to be going to, because people obviously will go and settle in new areas, but they're going to go where they have friends and relatives very often. And the map that we have gives you an indication of where those places are, and it's color-coded. You can just look at the thing and then click on the particular area, and it'll pop up. One point I had, Todd, that, that you were bringing up that I think is important is that it's the speed that's probably the speed this happens with that is probably the biggest problem. In other words, a slow increase in the share of immigrant households for a school, you know, kids from immigrant households, it will still create challenges, obviously. But when it's this overnight kind of situation, it's incredibly difficult to deal with. And that's the case with the labor market or anything else as well. And the interesting point, I think, in this particular county, northeast of Houston, that you talk about some in your report, and we're going to have links to all of these things in the show notes, is that what's happening is kind of a combination of federal immigration policies, lack of seriousness about enforcing the law, and not even just now under Biden, but even earlier, combined with a local developer. You have some pictures on your Twitter feed of the vast expansion of this colonia that this developer is bringing about. And so when you put sort of Biden and this local developer together, you get this kind of ridiculous situation that really no school district should have to deal with. Yeah, that's exactly right. This is all policy driven and the policy really favored for three years. We're into the third year of this really favored, as I said, young families with children and also women who were pregnant seven months pregnant. So we don't have numbers on how many pregnant women have crossed in over the last three years, but but there will be another kind of delayed sort of balloon of children who will have to be accommodated through that. And the unaccompanied minors who the administration made clear early on had a free pass right into the country, there'd be no enforcement whatsoever on unaccompanied minors. And that's why we've had so many hundreds of thousands of those cross in. And it's going to go on for at least another two years. It looks like the legislature 
Congress and at state levels are not going to be doing much more with this subject for another two years, and the policies are not changing. So whatever the country has taken on, children, school-aged children in the last two years is probably going to just double or maybe even treble between now and the, the end of the Biden term. And the interesting point, and Steve referred to the, the money issue as well, because like you said, this is policy driven, and yet there's no money from the drivers of policy. You can kind of sympathize, for instance, with Mayor Adams of New York, who even though he's unwilling to demand his fellow Democrat in the White House stop the flow, he's saying, you know, this is costing us a lot of money. and the feds should help bail us out, basically. And so, in a sense, you can sort of see the point. I mean, obviously, we need to change the policy as well, but the federal government is creating what you're describing in this school district in Texas and what Steve has highlighted nationwide. And yet, you know, although there is some degree of federal aid for education, mainly the states and localities are left holding the bag. That's right, because I mean, this is one of those one of those sort of pocketbook issues I mentioned earlier that almost all Americans will feel immediately if they're not already suffering because you know bond elections raise your school taxes right, and you are going to even if you don't have children and you live in a school district, you're paying more taxes, a lot more taxes, and I think that that has been insufficiently explored journalistically or even by think tanks about you know what is what is this impact on the tax structure locally and in the case of Liberty County I point out in the book that this is actually an unusual case the one in Liberty County because there's a landowner who's selling land to the parents of these children and so in a sense in this one area they are paying the freight. And even they have rejected the last couple of bond elections as they're just absolutely fatigued by right. the constant bond elections, one after another after another, and even they can't take it anymore. They are paying for that. But in all these other school districts where you see these influxes, the people who live there before, the parents who just have houses there, can't readily move away. Those people are going to be paying a lot more tax to handle these migrant students that are coming in who are, whose parents will not own property. Right. Whose parents will be living illegally. I mean, this is a point that I actually didn't get until Steve had pointed it out to me in another context. Even renters pay some property tax because it's factored into their rent. So the point is, if you're a renter in a district and you know you don't have kids, say, in school, but you're in a district that has a lot of uh, an influx of immigrants, you're still paying for that because it's still factored into your rent. So it's not just landowners that end up bearing the tax cost of this influx. Yeah, that's a good point. So we're basically over time. So I want to thank Steve and Todd for telling us about their respective examinations of the impact of immigration on public schools, the links to what we've talked about today are going to be in the show notes. And I'll be back in a second with some closing comments. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Thanks. Take care, Todd.
Take care. Good work, Steve. I loved it. It was a great study. Yeah, I loved your stuff too. And finally, there were a number of Supreme Court decisions relating to immigration that came out over the past couple of weeks. And next week's show, we're going to talk about that, sort of recap the Supreme Court term and its effects on immigration. And probably the most consequential decision was one that said that states didn't have standing to sue in challenging federal immigration policies. This has been the basis of most of the state challenges. And there's been dozens of states who filed suit against various Biden administration policies. And so it'll be interesting how that plays out and whether that actually has an effect on the next Congress or the next time Congress takes up immigration, where it might, as one of the justices suggested, actually insert into the statute the ability for states or others to file suit rather than now where it's kind of implicit based on the claims of standing. In other words, that you have a right to sue based on the costs to the state generated by the federal government's immigration policies or lack thereof. So we'll talk about that next week. And in the meantime, thank you for tuning in to Parsing Immigration Policy. Rate or review us, if that's possible, on the platform that you use. And in any case, feel free to email us at center at cis.org if you have any comments or credit or complaints or uh, compliments or whatever, whatever's on your mind. So until then, thanks for tuning in.